Section 16 of Buff, a Collie, and Other Dog Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckle. Buff, a Collie, and Other Dog Stories by Albert Payson Terhune. The Foul Fancier, Part 2. On a slippery and slushy morning in early spring, some six months after dog and man formed their life partnership, Dan started through a corner of Pitvale for his daily hike. He had just won a foul-encrusted battle, and had not yet signed up for another. In the interval, before hard training should set in, he was keeping in shape by means of these daily tramps, and by a little gym work. He and Jeff came abreast of Vining's livery stable, and were about to swing past it, when out through the open doorway flashed something tawny and big and ponderous. In other words, Vining's vile-tempered old mongrel Ingus Mastiff had caught scent of the approaching collie, and had dashed forth to do battle with the stranger. That was a cute trick of Vining's dog. He was a terror in the neighborhood, this huge mastiff with the quarter streak of St. Bernard and the temper of a sick wildcat, and for years he had maintained his repute as local bully. Even now, when age and weight were beginning to slow him down, he still reveled in the prospect of springing out upon some unwary and less warlike dog as it passed the stable, and doing his industrious best to kill it. As it chanced, this was a street seldom used by Rourke, and Jeff and the Mastiff had never before met. Jeff, mincing along on fastidious white toes through the slush, close behind his master, had no warning of the attack. The first hint of danger came when, out of the ever-watchful corner of his slanting dark eye, he chanced to see the whizzing, brindled bulk bearing down upon him. There was no time to get out of the way, even had Jeff been of the breed that gets out of the way when peril shows its shining face. To the average dog there would have been no chance to prepare for the impact, but the best type of collie is not an average dog. In his brain, though never in his heart, he harks back to his wolf ancestors. It was this ancient wolf strain now that made the sedately pacing Jeff spin sideways as though on a pivot, letting the mastiff fly past him, the flaring jaws missing his head by an inch. The mastiff whirled almost in mid-air and came back to the assault, but as he charged a second time, Jeff was not there. The collie had not run, he had merely sidestepped, and in the same motion his white eye-tooth scored a deep furrow in the side of the charging foe. Dan Rourke had swung aloft his walking-stick to stop the unequal fight and rescue his chum, for he had heard of the brindled monster's prowess. But at this move from Jeff he let his striking arm drop, idle, and he sputtered aloud in stark admiration. Footwork, Bajee, and countering, too! Lord, but Jim Corbett might have been proud of that stunt! Again the Mastiff was charging in, lurching craftily, to drive his nimbler foe into the angle of door and wall, and thus to corner him and render his footwork useless. Jeff saw through the ruse, but he saw too late to escape. Now the collie was a scant eighteen months old. His chest and shoulders had not yet gained the proportions that would be theirs in another two years. Moreover, this was his first battle. Left to himself he would never have sought trouble, for he was a friendly and frolicsome youngster who had met with nothing but kindliness in all his brief life. But his every muscle and joint was as lithe as oiled whipcord. There was not a fleck of loose flesh on his wiry sixty-six-pound body, and behind his conscious brain burned not only the battle prowess, but the uncanny shrewdness of his ancient vulpine forebears. Back in the wilderness days, the wolf that could not hold his own in warfare, and be ready for all surprises, was the wolf that died exceeding young and left no progeny. The wolf that won the right to have descendants was the wolf brave enough and quick-witted enough to transmit his life-saving traits to those descendants. 
All this a thousand years ago, and Dan Rourke's pet collie was profiting by it. When the Mastiff charged him, Jeff acted on pure instinct. Having shown his resentment at the effort to chew him up, he was now quite content to let the quarrel rest where it was. But apparently this dog mountain who had attacked him would not have it so. In fact, the Mastiff had cornered him, and the only road to safety was to go through a foe nearly twice as big as himself. This looked like an impossible task, yet Jeff tackled it. His hindquarters were wedged between the open door and the street wall. In front was the Mastiff. The big dog was not charging now. No need to waste speed and rashness on a helplessly cornered victim. Head down, legs crouched, the Mastiff crept on his waiting prey. There was a hideous menace in the crawling, savage advance. Up went Dan Work's stick again. Dan had gripped the weapon by the ferrule, and he was measuring the distance between its clubbed handle and the giant mongrel's head. But as before, he did not strike, for there was no need. The Mastiff gathered himself for a death spring, but Jeff sprang without waiting to gather himself. Jeff did not spring aloft as did the other. He dived under the rearing forelegs, slashing one of them to the bone as he sped. The Mastiff snapped murderously at his whizzing foe as Jeff passed under him. His ravening teeth closed on nothing but a bunch of golden rough hair instead of reaching their goal in the collie's vertebrae and the mouthful of fur was his sole asset from the encounter. Roaring aloud with rage and with the pain of his flesh wounds, the mongrel bounded out of the corner and made for his escaped victim. Now Jeff had fought his way out of the trap at no worse loss than a bunch of neck hair. The whole world lay before him as an avenue of retreat. No domestic animal but the greyhound can pass a strong young collie in a foot-race, and assuredly this unwieldy mastiff could never have hoped to overhaul him. But a queer change had come to the friendly youngster during that ugly moment in the corner. He, who had always been on jolly terms with everyone, had been set upon in unprovoked fashion, while he was minding his own business. He had been threatened with death, for a less clever dog than Jeff could not have failed to read red murder in the mastiff's bloodshot eyes. More, a wad of his fur had been yanked out in most painful fashion, and for the first time in his eighteen pleasant months of life, hot wrath surged up in the collie's friendly heart. This giant was not going to treat him so and get away with it scot-free. The battle-yell of his wolf ancestors burst from Jeff's furry throat. As the mastiff turned, he faced a wholly different antagonist from the astonished puppy he had set upon in the corner. Rough a bristle, head down, snowy fangs glinting from under his upwrithing lip, young Jeff flew to meet him like a fluffy catapult, and a truly epical fight was on. The Mastiff went at his work with veteran ferocity and method, born of fifty death-fights, but he had run up against something unique in his long experience. Jeff was not there. Or rather, Jeff was everywhere at once, and nowhere in particular. He was in and out and over and under, never wasting time in seeking for a permanent hold, but nipping, tearing or slashing, and then striking at almost the same instant for some totally different part of the mongrel's big body. The Mastiff reared and thrashed about, ever striving to pin his eel-like adversary under him, to crush him down by dint of vast weight, to pinion him while the heavy foam-flecked jaws should find their death-hold. But Jeff had an annoying fashion of not staying in any one place long enough to be annihilated. And at every impact his white teeth were leaving their red mark. "'It's Corbett and Sullivan all over again,' blithered Dan Rourke, his expert eye following each move his soul afire with prideful ecstasy at his untried chum's marvellous war genius. "'Will you look at that footwork?' he exhorted high heaven and the fast-gathering knot of spectators. Then his triumph-song became a grunt. The mastiff, in one of his mad plunges, had found his mark. His jaws closed on Jeff's fur-padded shoulder, and he hung on. 
With one wrench of his bullhead he bore the slighter dog to the earth and began to grind his jaws into the shoulder he had seized. For a moment Jeff writhed and flung himself about impotently in the fearsome grip. In that instant of futile heaving his eyes sought and met Rourke's, and in the flashing gaze there was no tinge of fear or of appeal. It was as though he tried to assure the man he had fought his best and that he was sorry he could do no better. But before Dan's stick could go up there was a new flurry of fur and flesh, and Jeff's sharp teeth had sunk in agonizing style deep into one of the mongrel's thick pads. The pain was so sudden and acute that the mastiff loosed his merciless shoulder-grip to lunge for the collie's head, and in that brief instant Jeff was not only on his feet and free, but was back at the assault with all his primal zest. The mastiff, bleeding and almost breathless, reared for another attack, his cut hind foot clawed at a film of ice on the slippery pavement he lost his balance and fell floundering on his back in the slush for a second he lay there stunned for his head had hit the edge of the open door as he fell and his brindled throat was exposed and defenceless now's your chance jeff chortled rourke deliriously finish him but the collie did not take the chance as the mongrel tumbled backward jeff had darted in at him but when he saw the huge brute prone and helpless on the ground the collie for some innate sportsmanly reason forbore to fly at the inviting throat and rip out the jugular. Instead, looking down in grave wonder at the sprawling, kicking mastiff, Jeff took a step backward and stood, ears cocked, head on one side, slender body still braced for action, waiting for the fallen dog to rise. Dan gasped, then he swore aloud. The worn-out mongrel staggered to his feet, all the fight knocked out of him by the stunning head-blow and by loss of blood. Jeff danced forward afresh to the fray, but, tail between legs, the mastiff turned and limped off into the stable. His back and the slipping hind legs offered rare chance for the victor to clinch his hard-won conquest, but Jeff only stared in mild interest after his beaten enemy. Then, limping a bit from his shoulder wound and panting fast from his fierce exertions, he trotted over to Dan Rourke and thrust his wet muzzle into his master's hand, as if in quest of sympathy or praise. He got both. Barely crowing with exultation, Dan dropped his stick and flung both arms about his scarred pet in a breathtaking bear-hug. "'Gee, but you're the real thing, Jeffy,' he caroled, fondling the inordinately happy dog. "'Of all the pups that ever happened, you're—you're you're that pup. Say,' appealing to the crowd, "'did you birds ever see the like of this feller's footwork? Did you? And did you see how he wouldn't pitch into that big stiff when he was down and out? Some white man, I'll say. Come on home, Jeff.' That shoulder of yourn will stand some patching. Come on, champ. Gee, but I sure named you after the right man. There ain't anything double your weight can lay a glove on you. Red Keegan pattered home excitedly from a morning visit to the Pitvale Hotel. In his hand he was brandishing a telegram that had been received at the hotel telegraph desk while he was there. He made his way on hurrying feet to the barn back of the bungalow, which served his fighters as a gym, and where, at this time of day, Rourke was reasonably certain to be dawdling with the punching bag. He came upon Dan, kneeling beside his collie, washing out lovingly a deeply ragged cut in the dog's right shoulder. At sight of the manager, Rourke broke forth into a gleeful recital of the bout between Jeff and the Mastiff, but he had scarcely gotten through the first sentence when Keegan cut him short. "'That can wait,' decreed the manager, waving the telegram. "'This can't. Listen, I've clinched Feltman, at last, but right here in Pitvale. Main bout for the athletic carnival next month. Four thousand dollars, biggest purse ever. Those carnival guys don't seem to care how they spend it, and they count on your being a star attraction here in Pitvale. Remember, we figured they'd do that. Uh-huh, assented Rourke, unimpressed. But, say, Red, you'd ought to have seen the way Jeff lit into him after he'd fought his way out of that corner. He— Shut up, 
commanded Keegan, with the exquisite courtesy of his kind. Here we're landing the biggest thing we've ever pulled off, and you go gassing about a measly dog fight? I tell you— Well, retorted Dan, nettled at his manager's tone, and still more at his total dearth of appreciation for Jeff. I don't see as there's anything to put on a silk shirt for, in the bunch of news you've lugged home with you. When I fought Feltman back in August, you and Bud Curley would have had to carry me out of the thing heels forward if we hadn't been able to swing that white-in-the-face claim of foul. I've gone ahead some since then, I know, but I don't figure I've gone ahead far enough to stop Kid Feltman. And we can't try the same white-faced stunt a second time. He'll be watching for it. So will the referee, whoever he is. You act like you'd bring home a gold mine, Red. Looks to me like you'd carted back a hornet's nest. How's the purse going to be split? A lad like Feltman'll want it. Danny, interposed Keegan with a weary scorn. You talk even foolisher than you look. And you look foolisher than any other man the Lord ever bothered to pin a face onto. I told you a month ago the way I was aiming to work this thing. If you've got more interest in how you're bandaging that cur's shoulder than in the way we're due to make a killing, there's no use going over it all again to you. I remember, last time, you were so busy teaching Jeff to speak for bones that you didn't more than half listen to me, and now I suppose I gotta say it all over again. He sighed. It was the sigh of a martyr. But Dan did not answer. With worried tenderness he was twining about Jeff's hurt shoulder a festoon of witch hazel soaked bandage. With patience, and ostentatious and grunt-punctuated patience, Keegan waited until the first aid task was ended and the bandaged collie was curled up at his master's feet. Then he spoke. Feltman's been after that return fight with us, he began, with labored detail, and as if talking to a mental defective, till he's got so he'd pretty near be willing to get into the ring with you blindfolded and with both hands tied behind him. Maybe you know that, if you know anything, which you don't. He's itching to square himself for that one on foul of ours, and I've been letting him itch till he wouldn't gag on terms. But at that, it's a miracle we've landed him. Anyone with a grain of sense ought to see through it. First, I juggle the carnival crowd into making him and his manager stand for Saul Krampfmuller as referee. If there's anything Saul knows less about than refereeing a fight, I'd like to know what it is. Being sporting editor of the Chronicle here, he thinks he knows it all, and what he don't know, he suspects. I've seen him referee two fights. Why, that porosity wouldn't know a foul if it was printed out for him on a raised map. Anyone could get by with murder with him as referee. It's most a shame to try the real classy stunts on him. Any raw work would do. Feltman's nearer a top-notch than you'll ever get to be in a fifty years, but he's a numbwit. You could hit him with an axe in the ring before he'd find out he was being fouled. So there's your combination, a chucklehead referee and a fair-fighting guy who don't know how to watch out for fouls. And then there's you, who I've learned to be the best lad at slick fouling in the whole business. Why, it's too easy. It's a crime. You can cripple or dizzy him in the very first round if you've a mind to, and as often after that as you need. Then keep remembering that $4,000 purse with 80% for the winner, and even a minus brain like yours ought to be able to figure out the answer. We'll start your training tomorrow. I've a couple of corking new ones I've worked out lately. One of them's a killer, and both of them smooth enough to get past most any referee, let alone Saul Kampmuller and that carnival crowd. We'll work em out and brush up on a few of the old ones, too. So, funny thing, spoke up Rourke, his hand on the dog's head. Funny thing about Jeffy here. He had a dandy chance to rip the throat out of that mining dog, and he wouldn't do it, just because the dog was down and couldn't help himself. What do you think of that, Red? Just because the other dog was down. No referee to penalize him for fouling, either. He just stepped back, kind of polite-like, and— For the love of Mike, groaned the irate manager, will you stop jawing about that bum cur and— Then, pursued Rourke serenely, 
When Vining's dog turned tail and sneaked away, Jeff had the chance of his life to tear in and do all sorts of damage, but he didn't. Wouldn't fight foul, the grand little cuss. Rourke fell silent. The manager stared at him in lofty and wordless contempt, but Dan did not see him. Still patting Jeff's head aimlessly and brooding over the couch and dog with puckered, half-shut eyes, he sat there. Dan Rourke was thinking, and thought, to him, was as difficult as it was rare. Presently he spoke again, in a rumbling, ruminating mutter. "'Wouldn't fight foul, Jeff wouldn't,' he repeated. "'Fought like a bearcat, so long as the scrap was even, but not a foul stunt from first to last. Wouldn't win on a foul. He couldn't tell but what that big mutt would get up and tear him in half, like he'd just come plenty close to doing. But Jeff wouldn't tackle him while he was down. Wouldn't—' "'Say,' put in Keegan, "'I'm going to the house to write a letter and then send off a wire.' Keep right on talking, please, all the while I'm gone. Keep on telling about that dogfight. Then, by the time I get back, maybe the most of it will have gone out of your system, and you can think of real things again. So long. Dan Work did not obey his manager's elephantinely sarcastic request to go on talking of the dogfight in Keegan's half-hour absence. But he did the next thing. He went on thinking about it. At least his wantedly sluggish thoughts fixed themselves on one detail of the fray, clinging to it like leeches and sending forth ramifications into the far and unused recesses of his brain. These thoughts were not put into words, but their gist may be translated roughly into English somewhat as follows. Jeff had fought without training or precept. He had followed his own instincts. He had fought according to his nature. Thus he had fought fair. He had fought clean. Not only had he disdained to make use of any crooked advantage, but he had risked defeat and possible death, sooner than to foul. Jeff was a dog. Dan Rourke was a man. How did Dan Rourke win his fights? Three out of four of them he won by clever fouling. He fought crooked. That was how he made his living, by tactics his own dog would not stoop to. The collie looked on Dan as the greatest person under the sun, yet the dog fought square and Dan fought foul. What was the answer? It was a joke in fistic circles that Dan Rourke was the dirtiest fighter in that section of America, and that he managed to get away with it by sheer craftiness. Dan had felt, still felt, a thrill of admiration for Jeff for fighting so fair. Wasn't it possible that the fight public might give that same sort of admiration to a man who was known to fight fair? Going a tottering mental step farther, wasn't it just barely possible that all regular folks had the same little thrill of admiration for a fellow who was on the level in everything? It was a funny idea, of course, but... Then again, it was great to have someone, even a dog, look up to anybody as Jeff looked up to his master, and to think that master was the best man alive. What sort of mangy hypocrite was Dan Rourke to make his living crookedly, by superfouling, while Jeff thought he was a saint? The dog fought clean. The man fought dirty. Was the man lower than the dog? It was a rotten thought, but it had a whole lot of sense to it. If Jeff here could risk death sooner than fight foul, what was the reason why Dan Rourke at this point in the argument, Dan stopped and started all over again from the beginning. He was on the third complete review of it when Red Keegan came bustling back. Well, queried the manager briskly, have you told yourself enough about the dogfight so you can remember it a while without telling it again? I, I guess so, mumbled Dan uncertainly, and he made excuse to get out of the way. He was still thinking, thinking hard, and with a growing unhappiness. His thoughts were not yet crystallizable into words. But next morning, after a night of less continuous slumber than he could recall in many a year, he dressed and started down to breakfast with a brand-new and granite-hard resolve in his tired mind. For once in his life he had solved a problem. 
had solved it all himself. End of section 16